You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grain Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. That last one's always a little tough for me to say. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Indiana Senator Todd Young, Senior Senator Todd Young, who is lifelong Hoosier and a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. We're, of course, very honored and thrilled to have him on. We're going to talk a lot of um, Army and Marine Corps smack today, but we'll do it respectfully. And we want to start with asking Senator Young how you're feeling about the current situation. It's obviously a time of, of it's an unprecedented time of worry in many regards and uh, people bonding together to govern their own behavior for the greater good. Uh, we don't want to dwell on it, but you want to talk a little bit about your views of the current COVID crisis and what we're doing to handle it. Yes, unprecedented, uh, aptly describes uh, the current situation, Robert. Um, you know, it's 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 a public health crisis meets economic crisis meets uh, social and and community uh, sort of, of disruption. I think we're all looking forward to uh, getting our sort of regular cadence and pattern of of uh, our lives back, but. Um, you know, look, I, I, I think this is a, a time of great stress and strain for all Americans, but in particular, our frontline healthcare workers, um, uh, so many uh, individuals who, who went into this crisis already experiencing some of the things we're now hearing uh, a lot about, we're now seeing a lot of the effects of. Uh, if you were lonely before the pandemic hit, your probably really lonely right now. Um, if you were feeling, you know, ill before the pandemic, um, you know, uh, this is not a good time uh, to be unwell. So um, uh, you or loved ones uh, may uh, have succumbed to this uh, wicked virus. And um, I, I think it's all, at the same time, though, made us all appreciate just how much we need one another, uh, how much we appreciate one another. And uh, Robert, as, as a strong Republican and someone uh, who's proud of who I am and, and what I've stood for in, in a public sense, I'm not talking about people just like me. I mean, I, I really miss people very much unlike me 
right now. And the ability to mix with them on a regular basis and see them in casual public settings. And, and so um, it's this sort of defining moment in a person's life um, that uh, one would hope would really um, uh, heighten our appreciation for how much we value one another and um, are all in this uh, same same sort of challenge and predicament together. And, and so I think we got a real uh, opportunity to build on this solidarity and come together into a, a more perfect union, a stronger nation on the back end of this. One of the things that that Hoosiers do really well is they lead. And there are many, many examples of that, of course, whether it's our six, I think with six vice presidents, along with the current one, Mr. Pence, uh, not only that, but uh, frontline soldiers and command officers. And they're known for Hoosiers are known for coming through in a crisis, not shrinking, they're shirking their responsibilities, not shrinking from doing what needs to be done. Uh, I know you're a history buff, as am I, and I'm looking at what uh, your friend, my friend, and former podcast guest, Eric Holcomb, is doing in the governor's office, and confronted with the worst crisis for the state since the Civil War, I just am admiring that he's handling it like Oliver P. Morton handled the Civil War, resolutely, strongly, and Make no apologies. This is what we have to do, but things will be better if we come together. You, you've known uh, Governor Holcomb a long time. What do you think about what he's doing in the state and how he's leading the state? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I'm really uh, impressed uh, by uh, uh, his his leadership and you know the daunting challenges that he's had to face. It wasn't too long ago that there was a Republican governor in a Western state who characterized the job of a governor is, is serving as the branch manager of the federal government. <laughs> and, 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 um, you know, the, there's, there's a, like all funny sort of, uh, statements. Uh, there's a little bit of truth to that. And, and what I mean is being governor is a very powerful and important and significant position. But over the years, as our federal government has grown, um, and adapted to uh, a national economy and then a global economy, um, the federal government has circumscribed the responsibilities of uh, the, our states in many respects. But in this unique moment, um, it is our governors we've been looking to for command leadership. And you mentioned the Civil War and Oliver Morton. Oliver Morton took the initiative. He wasn't able to assemble. A state legislature. So he went out there and he, he raised money from the party chairman uh, to continue the war effort because he had a deep conviction it was the right thing to do and, and uh, it was not without controversy. So similarly, um, Governor Holcomb has been leading in a difficult time. Henry Kissinger once said that uh, the art of public leadership involves uh, marching out in front of the parade but not losing the parade behind you. And, and, you know, sometimes it's a difficult balance because we know that there are so many competing equities and interests and concerns people have, public health and, and the economy and, and the governor is, is doing all he can with great integrity and principle um, to strike that balance, to maintain people's confidence, to get, keep, to bring the parade along. And, um, and he's done it with some good humor too. And, and so, 
Um, I really have great respect for Eric, and um, I think he's earned the respect of a whole lot of people um, who who may not have been aware of him on the front end of this, or or not particularly attentive to our state government leadership. Well, I couldn't agree more, and and you know I don't I don't mind saying that we have a nonpartisan podcast here. Uh, we've done terrific podcast about Birch Buy and with Bart Peterson and Kathy Davis and, and, but it's, it's certainly special for me as someone who's been involved in Republican politics now for uh, more than a few decades to see folks like you, like Eric Holcomb and others uh, prosper in this time and meet this challenge head on. One of the things that I was looking at in your, in your bio was that you're a fifth generation Hoosier. So that means your family moved to Indiana about when? Mid to late 1800s? So here's, here's an interesting thing about that. It's interesting you bring that up. And, and you give me an opportunity to sort of correct <laughs> my own record. Because I'm think, I, I believe, and I admit it, I'm the one who probably socialized that. It goes back more than five generations. Now, it would have been uncomfortable if it were two generations right here. <laughs> yeah, I don't think a second generation Hoosier is a talking point, but yeah, exactly, I get it. Exactly. But um, somebody recently uh, footnoted my Wikipedia page, and, and uh, I think it was one of my kiddos who actually brought it to my attention. And um, I looked it up, and I'd, I'd never researched my own family history. It was never of great interest to me um, for a particular reason. Um, and because I had somewhere imbibed at an early age that to be an American means that each generation redefines itself. You know, the fact that uh, my, my father or my grandfather might have been significant or insignificant um, should not uh, be where I draw my self-worth from, right? It's my job to go out there with my God-given talents and try and, and build upon whatever foundation I'm given. And from that, you sort of define your life and your success. Um, but um, because of my job, a lot of people ask me kind of where I came from, what my family history was and so forth. So um, um, this, this was of interest to me. As, as I saw the footnote and I opened it up and, and I descend from multiple generations. We're talking like sort of deep into the early 1800s, if I recall, of people who um, farmers, blacksmiths, tanners, mm-hmm. um, um, you name it, people who, who generally worked with their hands. And, and um, uh, so we've been around various parts of Indiana um, all around the Northeast, the Southeast, uh, Central, uh, whatever, uh, for a lot of generations and um, too, too many for me to quite track. I wasn't quite tr- sure how to track the document, but um, I love this state. I really do. And I have to admit, once I discovered that, it gave me a bit of a deeper connection to some of these places when I'd visit. Like, oh, you know, sure. Okay, yeah, I, believe I, it. I descend from people uh, that come from this region. And um, what, a, what a fantastic state we have with just salt of the earth people that help build this country. You know, it's interesting when you're talking about when your family came around, one of my favorite books on the Civil War defined one of its chapters, talked about how slavery geographically defined the Midwest. In revolutionary times, in the early 1800s, Indiana was the West. 
but because of the compromises leading that tried to address slavery, slavery leading up to the Civil War, Indiana became the North, along with Ohio and Illinois. It just shows you the impact that one particular issue had on how we saw ourselves as American geographically. Did you get the sense that you're based on on your knowledge that your family moved west for a particular reason that they they started like in Philadelphia or New Jersey or a place like that closer to the time of the Revolutionary War and then just kind of gradually pushed out in search of land because that would be a common Hoosier lineage. Um I would like to better understand that. I I actually do not understand that and I have not had an opportunity to research that but I I'm aware that the prospect of of, of cheap land and the opportunity associated with the land. And, and, and then later came the legal protection of the land, the legal title, which is what caused Abraham Lincoln to migrate, uh, his father to migrate north from Kentucky into Indiana. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, these sorts of things, this, these opportunities uh, drove so many people west, but uh, I did not uh, I, I don't know where my own family's history sort of, you know, emerged from. Yeah. You mentioned this a few minutes ago, and I want to say this as a compliment. You have a reputation as someone who doesn't mind traveling the Hoosier State and shows up at events that you would never think a United States senator would show up to. But you have that you have that drive to be with the folks and never forget where you came from. What is, before we talk about kind of your college and your military career a little bit, what's it like you've traveled the Hoosier state as just a private citizen, then as a candidate for Congress, then a congressman, then a candidate for Senate, then a senator. What's that like? How do you feel you're received? And is it fun to go to the Mayberry Cafe and say, oh my God, it's Todd Young instead of Senator Young, where they feel comfortable with you because you've been there and you've you've demonstrated your willingness to sit down and have a conversation with people who'll tell it to you straight. Yeah, I, I take pride in um, my ability to make people feel comfortable, right? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, not everyone who approaches me uh, knowing I'm a United States Senator is, is initially comfortable, but I, I do feel like that um, I'm able to put people at ease. And I think there's uh, a lot of that just comes from the family I grew up in. You know, we were taught like so many people uh, in this great state that, you know, it's, it's a quintessentially American sentiment. Uh, no one is better than any other man or woman. And mm-hmm. gosh darn it, um, that was that was instilled in me. And that's part of what drives me to do different things and uh, set different goals and try to accomplish those goals. But it also carries into how I relate to others. I really don't think I'm any better than anybody else. I don't think that my title um, somehow gives me higher status than others. In fact, it's even common for someone um, at at a local level of government to to refer to my office as a higher office. And and I bristle a bit against that. It's just a different office. It's, It's a different responsibility. We're all important. We all have very essential roles to play in, in the society, society, whether it's government or whether it's the person who um, picks up my, my garbage. Um, you talk about an important role in society. If I didn't show up, 
for work for a couple of months straight, people might not notice um, for a while. <laughs> Kidworthy but, would make sure they notice. But 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 I'll tell you, if if uh, if my garbage weren't collected for a couple of months, um, can you imagine? I mean that that's really so that puts things in perspective. Every job is is uh, quite important out there, and um, really everyone is important. And, and you know, I want to say this because I'm gonna I'm gonna guess you're gonna agree a thousand percent. The attitude that you just discussed with us is exactly the attitude of your predecessor. Dan Coates, former senator, two-time senator, former congressman as well, and army veteran, <laughs> is, is probably the most approachable person I've ever met who held that office. Uh, you would be along that way. Uh, Hol uh, Governor Holcomb is very approachable. Of course, I worked for the ultimate everyman uh, former Marine Lieutenant Colonel Greg Ballard, but Dan Coates was as grounded as any politician, public official I ever met. How well did you get to know him? And did you, did you kind of see how he interacted with folks and go, you know what, he's getting this right. So one of the things that I, I am impressed by, um, and not impressed in a normative, favorable or unfavorable way, but just like that, that I'm really struck by is how, in my mind, the best leaders are, are people who don't try to pretend to be somebody else, who figure out how to be themselves and cultivate their own skills uh, in furtherance of, of, of important values, shared values, right? And... Um, Dan Coates never put on any airs uh, in, in his public capacity. He still doesn't to this day when I see him, you know, um, uh, and um, I think that that is one of the reasons he was so successful as a leader. That's one of the reasons people liked him so much uh, as a U.S. senator and director of national intelligence. And one of the reasons why fellow senators trusted the guy. Um, he was trustworthy. He was humble. He's friendly. He had a good sense of humor, uh, but he wasn't a wise guy. Um, he, he wasn't a blowhard. Now, there are some of my colleagues, frankly, that are that are that are hams and, um, <laughs> and posture and and preen and and there's an authenticity to it. That that's just who they are, right? And they can pull it off because that's who they are. So there are different types of leadership. It was one of the things that. I studied when I entered the Navy and then went into the Naval Academy. You've heard I served in the Marines, right, Robert? I try not to tell anyone. Okay. All right. All right. So um, I didn't know if you're going to bring it up, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were certain subjects I was told by Kenworthy that weren't to be discussed. That was one of them. And, right. and, and your love of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Well, you know, not everyone can get into the Marines, but so, um, so Robert, uh, <laughs> You're a great American. You are a great American soldier, <laughs> and, and I've got great respect for you. So listen, um, in the military, one of the things that I did, you probably did as, as well, is you'd look at different leaders and say, what, is, what makes that leader effective? Their personality is so different. Their demeanor is so different than this other leader. And I'd try and draw traits from leaders that, that I thought were replicable 
that um, that I thought maybe were consistent with my own sort of personality and amplify those in the end. Um, I found that to be probably the best um, mode of, uh, of training leaders is just being around, immersed in a culture of leadership, right? Uh, not trying to, in a book or in some sort of tutorial, learn how to be a typical uh, type of leader. So just be true to yourself. So Dan Coates, he's a humble guy. He's, he's kind of like a quintessential Midwesterner, right? Mm-hmm. Just what Hoosiers typically want in their leaders, whether it's business, government, nonprofit, whatever. And um, he brought that to bear and, um, and, 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 you know, with energy and integrity over a number of years. And, um, and, and Mayor Ballard did the same sort of thing. And there's just tons of examples out there. A lot of our chief executives of, of major companies like Eli Lilly, they come from that mold mm-hmm. all the way down to guys like my dad. Of course, I'm biased, but, um, you know, he, he ran a small business for years, uh, probably a half dozen employees um, at their height. And um, it was a sales business. And um, my dad, um, slightly different personality than me. You know, um, a bit more of a ham. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I always felt like he was jealous of me at Lincoln dinners when I, I go around hugging people and, and get to go up there and, and say a few words. You know, dad was actually kind of jealous. And, and I was like, Dad, you know, it's not as glamorous as it looks sometimes, but uh, yeah. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction with our friend Paul Okeson, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center with our friend Jim Dora Jr., the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, too many friends to mention, <laughs> our Eastsiders, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and the greatest of the great, P.E. McAllister. McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You're uh, listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We have our senior senator, Todd Young, lifelong Hoosier, fifth generation plus Hoosier. Senator Young, is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? Yeah, there are lots of them. Um, Most of them are unsung. Most of them uh, will never be on a ballot. Uh, most of them will never occupy uh, the C-suites. Um, most of them are uh, toiling away with great anonymity um, and uh, with, with, uh, without recognition for causes they believe deeply in. I'll give you an example. Um, my aunt, my aunt, who hap- happens to be a prominent Democrat, by the way. Um, Are you kidding? Who? Her name is Sharon Pierce. She's CEO of the largest children uh, welfare, children services agency uh, in the state, the villages. They do adoption placement. They deal oh, with sure, foster, sure. foster children and, and, and so forth. And, and she's dedicated her life uh, to helping uh, children 
who often come from the most trying circumstances, um, oftentimes just put into a little better place, sometimes a much better place. And um, uh, her, her life ha- has given meaning to others' lives, but it, it's also given uh, a lot of meaning to uh, her own work. And, and uh, so she's a mission-driven person. She knows how to motivate others. Uh, she's always offering encouragement uh, to others, myself included. And um, she, everything she does is, is based on the service of others, achieving better outcomes for others, as opposed to um, feeding her personal ego. She uses the platform of this not-for-profit agency, the Villages, not to elevate herself, but instead to help others. And so I believe, as I think all conservatives should believe, in institutions, family, business, church, neighborhood. There's just, you know, a multiplicity of important institutions. One of those institutions happens to be government. And you and I, Robert, in, in various capacities, have felt called to serve at different times through government, not to elevate ourselves, not to create a cult of personality, but to serve. And um, so Sharon Pierce would be a fantastic fantastic example of that kind of servant leadership. Yeah. We talked earlier. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. And and I hope she understands that we're going to reach out to her and, and get her, try to get her on the podcast. We'd love to talk to her. Your path to the Naval Academy is is interesting in the sense that you joined the Navy first. Am I getting this correct? You joined the Navy right out of high school. I mean, like like all of us, like I don't know what the percentage would be, but I would imagine it's in the high 90s where people join the military right after high school. And that's what you did. And then you got appointed to the Naval Academy Talk a little bit about that, because I've never heard that before. I know people who were enlisted that became officers, but but not the path that you took. So it's actually a fairly high percentage of service academy graduates when I was going through the Naval Academy had some prior form of service or higher education. Some people had spent a year at a state university or another college, and they were on the bubble to get into the academy. Others went to a a private Northeastern prep school for a year to improve their SAT scores and so forth. But there are a number of of incredibly sharp enlisted people, as you know, Robert, who serve in our military, um, oftentimes with with PhDs. You know, they're right. Their letters, uh, by far, uh, outrank and outstack and outclass those of uh, their uh, uh, those who nominally outrank them, their officers. And 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 so, um, one uh, thing that the academies have commendably done over the years is tried to pull people out of the enlisted ranks who want to continue their education and get a formal four-year degree. And um, one way of doing that uh, is by giving them a year of sort of like training at this preparatory school in Newport, Rhode Island. And so this was stood up generations ago to ensure that people aren't directly 
leaving a, a destroyer and showing up at Annapolis and taking sure. advanced math. They need they need a transition period. So this preparatory school is is something they gave um, this young Hoosier an opportunity to attend, along with a bunch of enlisted folks. As an enlisted man, you know, almost on day one, I was there going through that that training environment. Um, so my time as an enlisted person in the Navy, though I wore the dungarees and, and the Dixie cap and, and, and so forth, um, I don't want to overstate that service. That was, um, that was schooling. It was, it was a fantastic experience. I mean, I was, I was spending time around a lot of these sailors and some Marines who um, had a lot more life experiences than I did, Right. And one of the things that, that people don't realize, unless you've been in, I mean, you can obviously read about it, so I don't want to hyperbolize it too much, but my son did two tours in Afghanistan as a, a infantryman in the army, uh, first AD, old Ironsides. And you and I, uh, you've been very kind in mentioning his service to me when I would see you when he was overseas and you would ask how he was doing. And it, it's, it's very, very, very kind of you. But one of the things that folks don't realize about being in the military, even as a private or corporal, the lower of the ranks, you're in charge of multi-million dollar equipment, tens and tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money is being entrusted to you on a daily basis, whether you're a tanker or an artillery man or a drone operator or, or the list goes on and on. I get the sense that teaches you a bit of responsibility that maybe you don't get yeah. in the civilian world. Is, would you agree with that or no? I was, I was awestruck by that. And in, in, in fact, I still see that in, in my day job today as well. In fact, I was uh, recently visiting Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Oman and some countries there in the Persian Gulf area. And I had an opportunity to um, take a, a hop in, in a helicopter out to one of our destroyers in the Persian Gulf at, uh, during a, a very tense period between the United States and Iran as we were ratcheting up our pressure campaign. So I spent half a day on this destroyer and I, I went to um, the bow of the ship where there's a massive, you know, 60 cal, I think, uh, machine gun. And um, that's used, if necessary, to shoot down a, a, an incoming Corvette vessel that may be armed with all sorts of explosives. And, and so, sure. and, and so um, there, there have been times when... Uh, according to the captain of the ship, that machine gun, which is manned by like, you know, a, a seaman, you know, a very young person, mm -hmm. a few ranks up out of, out of high school, um, has had to make a decision with a loaded weapon whether or not to fire on this vessel. You could, you could hear them speaking Farsi, I, I think, from the, sure. the vessel. And to put that amount of responsibility in the hands of one individual, I think is just not fully appreciated, not fully understood by um, most people who, who see their classmates from high school go off and say, yeah, I'm joining the Navy. Well, do you have an idea how much responsibility your friend just might have? Um, it's, it's a big deal. Or, the, you know, the people who are dealing with the fighter planes coming back on the carriers. I mean, the list goes on and on. A, a really good friend of mine named John Duns was a year behind me at Howe. He did six years in a submarine. 
I mean, the equipment on these vessels is just worth an immense amount of money. And it's also concomitant with an immense amount of responsibility. And I, I've said this, I don't know anyone who has, who has disagreed with this statement. And, you know, growing up on the east side in Indianapolis, I couldn't name them all, but so many of my friends joined the military uh, out of pride, out of necessity, whatever reason. Uh, Scott Kale, uh, Leanne Wilhelm, DJ Waterman, Dean Johnson, uh, John Duns, Pete Anderson. I, I honestly couldn't name them all. There are dozens of them to a man, including the conversations I've had with people in politics who were in the service, you, Eric Holcomb, Richard Luger, Greg Ballard, the best decision they ever made joining the military. Best professional decision they ever made to a man. No one has regretted it. They've all said, man, I'm so glad I did this. Would you agree that your decision to take that path as opposed to going to a different university and, and taking a different path, that that shaped you and changed you in ways that you could never have replicated any other way? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's defined who I am as a person. Um, I spent my last roughly year in the military of all things doing recruiting duty. Um, and, um, that's difficult duty. Frankly, it was, it was a lot more challenging than serving as an intelligence officer. And, and, um, one of the things that I, I would say during the booming 90s economy to University of Chicago students or Northwestern students who I was trying to recruit into right. the U.S. military um, was um, prefer the hard, prefer the hard, you know, put yourself through the crucible. I cannot explain to you exactly what sort of person you'll be on the back end of this experience, but I guarantee that the fire will make you a stronger person, right? Um, and uh, I believe that emotionally, physically, intellectually. Um, and just the people you meet. I, became, I met the best people in yeah, the military. The esprit de corps, that, that, uh, that of course sticks with you. Um, so yes, um, it's, um, it's something I, I, I'm not sure I've, I've heard someone say they regret serving their country, especially being prepared to put your life on the line for your country. I mean, that says, uh, and, and then serving with others of, of exactly. the same mind, serving with others of, of the same mind. So it is, um, it's, it's certainly a life-shaping experience. There's no doubt I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, but for that time in the military, and that stayed with me when I left the military, that that desire to kind of serve in a public capacity. And does that is that something that that crosses political lines? I mean, yes. Democrats serve their country, too. It's not just Republicans. And, you know, when you see a Tammy Duckworth or you meet a John Kerry or you meet whomever who who in the Senate or Congress, I mean, Indiana has got some some terrific veterans who have served uh, Luger. Coates, uh, uh, the list Baird, who's the fourth district guy and many others. But is that something when you see a Democrat and he was in the Marines or he joined the Naval Academy, it's like, okay, politics is politics, but let's, let's go make fun of some army guys. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I think Andy Jacobs probably had that come out of his mouth many times. Let's go make fun of some army guys. Oh, he was, he was, he was insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, I, it, I think, um, 
it's it's quite you know there there are a lot of my colleagues who put country first and and um, it they are comfortable putting partisanship aside in furtherance of really important national objectives. So I, I would never go so far as to suggest that in order to be a patriot, you have to serve in the military, right? Of course. Good um, point. But 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 I do think that um, I, I, I think that um, there's a certain facility uh, and ease uh, that comes with just identifying a mission setting aside your tribes and saying, look, we all got to work together. You know, you came from New Jersey. I came from Indiana. That person over there, they, they came from Arizona. We've never met one another. Here's the mission. We're going through the fire together. We're all in this together. Let's do the right thing. You know, that just feels like the military spirit. Absolutely. Absolutely. My three roommates in the military were black. One was from Detroit, one was from Chicago, and one was from basically Miami, Florida. And I got roasted routinely and enjoyed every second of it. And we still stay in touch to this degree as much as we can 30 years later. And I'll never forget uh, just being with them and laughing and watching sports and playing cards. And it's an experience, even though the east side of Indianapolis is very diverse and IPS is and how high school certainly was. It was it was just different. And it's something that I encourage every single young person, man or woman to do. Also, I would also say, quite frankly, I got two college degrees with no student loan debt. So if you're worried about impending student loan debt, call one of your local recruiters because you'll get a twofer in ways that you can't possibly <laughs> imagine. You know, there's something else I'd add. Um, and, 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 and we can pivot if you like, Robert. But um, one of the things that I learned in the military is, is service isn't service until it's not fun, until it's really hard, <laughs> until it's actual sacrifice, right? You know, jumping out of airplanes um, is, is for many fun. Um, scuba diving is a lot of fun. You know, I see these promotional uh, videos on TV about joining the Marines and that looks fun. Well, a lot of things I did in the military were really boring and not always a lot of fun, right? And, and, and so um, that's sacrifice, that's love of country, that's service to be able to perform those responsibilities with the same amount of professionalism um, and competence and hard work as all the other more glamorous duties. One of my favorite statistics, uh, I was the then Congressman candidate Mike Pence asked me to be the head of his Veteran Affairs Policy Committee when he was running for governor in 2012. And in the doing the research, so this statistic's old, but still valid, more valid because the number has grown. More than 2 million Americans volunteered for the military after 9-11, since 9-11. Those young men and women who volunteered could be going to combat, could be going overseas. That is a remarkable testament to the American sense of service. It is. It is. And it gives you a sense of, of a couple of things. Let's go ancient for a second. There are martial virtues and there are dull virtues. Martial virtues, you think of the warrior virtues, the courage, right? Um, the, the, the camaraderie, the adventure, um, the, the, the quest to engage in a righteous fight, right? Um, and, and hunger for that experience. 
For many of us, it's easy to identify with that. The dull virtues are sort of respecting one's elders, right? Mm -hmm. um, reverence, reverence for things that are either holy or sacred or just ought to be revered. Um, you know, respect, personal integrity. These are dull virtues. These should be equally celebrated, right? And they're an equal sort of part for me of, of what the military experience is all about. And, and um, I think it's, it's, it's so commendable and encouraging to see people raise their hand and say, I want to be part of all of that. Yeah. Terrific. That's a, exactly. And, and you'll never, if you want diversity in your life, join the military because you will meet all kinds of people. And it's, it's something that Indiana in its history I think we still have the fourth largest national guard in the country and we're not even in the top half in, in population or very close. It's typical of us. You attended the Naval Academy. You walked around. It's a beautiful place in Annapolis. Did you get a sense or did you ever walk around from class to class or when you were on duty and go, John McCain was here. Chester Nimitz was here. And you know, the, we could go on with the list of, of the, the heroes and the veterans and the Medal of Honor recipients who took classes where you took classes and served duty where you served duty. I didn't do a lot of that. No. Um, I, I was, um, you know, fear is a great motivator. And I always thought, I still think my strengths are kind of arts and letters, words, writing, uh, history, current events, um, these sorts of things. Uh, the Naval Academy is an engineering school. I mean, I studied electrical engineering, weapon systems engineering, rocket science. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, that was my worst class, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so can I say the Senate is not rocket science? Yeah, the Senate is not rocket science. And, and oh, by the way, rocket science is not brain surgery. All right. So anybody can figure it out. It just takes a whole lot of work. So this was a very tough experience for me. But um, it was for me in particular, I would say, uh, a real boost in my self-confidence for somebody who had to beg and claw their way into the Naval Academy. I literally I, I, I drove all the way out to the Naval Academy after getting multiple what were effectively brush offs and rejection letters from the um, um, uh, administration drove out there with my dad and um, showed up and they said, who are you? I'm the guy who's been writing you and, and uh, I'm going to go to the Naval Academy. That's how the prep school came about. And so forth. Sure. Um, and so I kind of uh, through initiative was in, and a lot of good fortune was able to finagle my way in and um, it must've been a weak recruiting year too, but uh <laughs> <laughs> got, got, got in. And, um, I had four good years there to work on my weaknesses and, uh, ended up finishing top 20% of my class, but that's a huge confidence builder. When you're surrounded by valedictorians and salutatorians and people who got into Harvard and Yale and, you know, I went to a good public school, but, um, I was, I was definitely not that caliber of student on day one. In fact, I was, I was barely getting by. So, um, so I didn't have a lot of time to reflect on 
you know, the, the leaders in Granite, nor did I have, candidly, a family background. I didn't have admirals or generals in, sure. in my family. So I didn't have the confidence that uh, my career trajectory was going to be great if I didn't excel in everything every day. Did you, at what point you joined the Marines? So after you graduate, you can choose Navy or the Marine Corps. At what point do you have to choose and why did you choose the Marines? I knew I was going to do something, uh, whether that was uh, the Navy SEALs, Special Warfare, uh, or the Marines. It was pretty much going to be one of those two that involved uh, physical activity that uh, involved, I hoped, some of that, that martial stuff, some of the adventure. And um, I went through the, the, the SEAL summer program. I went through the Marine Corps summer programs, and uh, they were both great. So that's kind of how I, I, I settled on, on those two. I was not so much into the math and engineering stuff. You do a lot of that on the, in most of the other Navy areas. So being a pilot involves a lot of math and, and, um, <laughs> and it didn't seem to involve, although there are a lot of fit pilots out there, it didn't seem to involve a, a lot of kind of exercise on the ground exercise. And, and so that's, that's always been a big part of my life. So it was sort of that simple. I like being outdoors. Um, a lot of people choose the army for that same reason, right? Um, they, they want to be, they want to be on the ground uh, around the troops. And, um, so, uh, I still enjoy that. I still enjoy being on the ground with the troops, with my, you know, fellow rank and file Hoosiers. And, um, as opposed to, you know, in, 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 in some other more kind of like artificial atmosphere. So Have you gone great. back to Annapolis as a United States Senator and kind of walked around and talked to the folks and said, Hey, look, stick it out. Cause you never know what can happen next. You know, I'd like to go back and spend a little more time. I, I went back as a congressman and had some lunch with some Hoosiers uh, in the in the largest dining hall in the country, King Hall there. I've been back and gave a couple of years of, of, of service to the advisory board that I sat on. So um, did that. Uh, been to a couple of football games, Sauce Crush Air Force. <laughs> um, I think it was last season. And, um, yeah, and, and I go to the Na Notre Dame Navy game every year. So, um, but you know, it's, it's a really, as you said, it's a beautiful place. It is, um, it's a place a lot of my classmates don't go back to on a regular basis. They still talk about it because it's such a tough place. It brings mixed emotions to a bunch of folks. It's That's interesting. Beautiful. That's interesting. But, yeah. It's, it's a great place to be from. Um, it's not always a great place to be at. There's a wall around it. And a lot of people think that wall is designed to keep outsiders from going in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you, yeah. You, you made a decision about a decade ago that has got to be one that involves your family, your wife and kids, your parents, your friends, that I have real admiration for, especially in this day and age. And that is you decided to put your name on the ballot. You had 
earned your law degree at several degrees. You'd been over in London. You had demonstrated a real commitment to education, bettering yourself. But when you put your name on a ballot as a, to run for United States Congressman, for United States Congress, excuse me, that is a whole nother level of, dare I say, exposure. Talk to us a little bit about that decision. You were up against a real, candidly, a, a very, very strong uh, Democrat Congressman, Baron Hill, who had l- won the seat, lost the seat, won it back, but had kind of a strangled hold on the ninth district, which is where you're running. How hard was that decision for you? And did you ever regret it immediately after you did it? No, I never regretted it uh, immediately after I did it. And, and uh, I made the announcement that I was going to run for the ninth congressional district seat of Indiana in January of uh, 2009. That's really early, right? Because the (laughs) election wasn't obviously until November of 2010. And and, uh, some of that was a function of inexperience. (laughs) Some of that was a function of the fact that I lacked a net worth and a network um, and, and, uh, I knew, is it okay to say that I never heard of you until you decided to run for Congress? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I was like, Todd Young, you mean Sajal's not running again? Who are we going to get down in the ninth? And they said, Todd Young. And I said, what's his background? And they said he was in the Marines. And I go, oh, okay, yeah. that's, I started laughing. I'm like, <laughs> you know, the Marine Corps has the best brand in the world. They just do. I hate it, but they have the best brand in the world. And I said to myself, I'm like, it's going to take a veteran who's going to work his tail off to beat to beat uh, Baron Hill in the ninth. Yeah. And I think that was one of the best things you had going for you. Yeah, you know, I had the work ethic. And so uh, because I began early in January of 09, it gave me an opportunity to practice law, which is what I was doing for that uh, fairly short period of my life for about two years. Uh, but practice law out of my Jeep as I traveled around uh, a district larger than the state of Connecticut. You know, I, I mean, I can remember pulling my laptop out and file folders out in subways and doing a little law work and then, you know, calling some people, making some friends, seeing if they can bring some others in. So I, I just made friends for about six months to eight months and uh, all around the district. Uh, prominent business people, people that happen to be involved in the party, uh, government leaders and others. And then, you know, if you're really going to run a campaign, you have to start bringing in resources. So I started to do that and identify people who might consider helping me on the ground. And the thing grew and grew and grew. And one of the uh, traits that Napoleon most appreciated in his generals, you know what it was, Robert? It was the most important quality in his generals. I would say audacity. Oh, that's a good guess. Actually, I probably would have guessed something like that, too. Napoleon uh, famously told one of his generals, one of his generals came yeah. up to Napoleon one time and said, I don't know where the enemy is. I don't know how many enemy there are. And Napoleon looked at him and said, attack him and find out. <laughs> well, I think you need audacity. So that's uh, absolutely in. And if you're going to really achieve anything remarkable or notable in life. But in this instance, um, I, 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 it was, it was the, the preeminent quality of luck. He needed his generals to be lucky. 
And I was lucky that I worked really hard, that I built that team, that I started bringing in money at the time the Tea Party movement hit, right? And, and so um, because of every ounce of energy I'd put into that race, um, uh, and I needed it in the end, I won. Let me see. You don't forget something like this, right? It was, right. It, it was 34% of the vote in the primary to 32 which is number, the person who came in second was actually Travis Hankins. Yeah. Uh, to 30, Mike Sodrell, former congressman, man for whom I have great respect. And then uh, there was another candidate, Rick Warren, not to be confused with the megachurch pastor, <laughs> uh, very nice guy. Uh, he, got, he received uh, 4% of the vote. And, and so I, I, I got across the line, was, was fortunate that things worked out for me. And um, and then I had the general election battle, the battle royale against Barron. Well, and we want to mention this, too, because I don't I want to make sure that we don't forget to talk about this, this aspect of your life and someone who I know you admire greatly. And I do. He's he's frequently when I ask the question about is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? The name we've heard most often is Richard Luger. And you have a had a long history with him. worked for him. How did he shape your sense of, of political service and public service and give you the confidence you needed a, because you see what a really good man can do in public service and also to take on a formidable candidate in Baron Hill. So, um, my, I spent a year and a half, uh, about two years, working for Senator Luger right after I got out of uh, the Marines. Uh, that was my first uh, real job. And, and um, I advised him. He didn't need a lot of advice on, on, on a couple of policy issues, right? Um, so I, I had a front row seat to see how he operated. And he was a guy who was comfortable in his own skin, who, who um, as I said earlier, he used his own skills in a way that was authentic to him. Uh, Dick Luger was, was never kind of a populist, flame-throwing politician. He's a soft-spoken man, um, cerebral. And I learned from him the importance of uh, building trusted, positive relationships with people on all sides of the political aisle, within Congress and outside of Congress, including back home. I learned from him the importance of, of being authentic and true to yourself um, in a, a profession known for sort of blowhards. He never was one. And he did not use the institution of the United States Senate to elevate himself. It was always to elevate issues, uh, notably nuclear nonproliferation. That became sort of the signature issue for which uh, I think he is rightly known. Uh, I also learned from him the importance of, of actually learning things, you know, actually trying to, to learn an issue before you open your mouth and opine superficially about it, right? Um, and, and he did have a real command of the issues. Much of that was just a function of his, his intellect and his uh, attention and pro- to and pride in um, learning issues. I also got a sense of the, a measure of the man's humanity. He always treated staff. Uh, like myself, respectfully, and understood that he was part of a broader team, 
Mitch Daniels said that in the podcast we did with with Governor Daniels. Uh, we didn't actually get to uh, Mitch Daniels' time as governor. We hope to do a podcast on that when he's less busy. But he he mentioned that about how Luger treated the staff it was very gracious, very like let's help you know. It's time for you to move on. How can we help you? You know, you need to do the next great thing in your life. And in the list of people who worked for Senator Luger or Mayor Luger reads like a Hoosier's who's who of people who've done great work. Teresa Lubbers, Sue Ann Gilroy, Jim Morris, Todd Young, Mitch Daniels, the list goes on and on. So there's a lesson there too, which is um, either know how to hire well or hire people who hire well. And uh, <laughs> he did that. And, 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 you know, clearly many people applied to work for Senator Luger because um, he, he was such a great man by reputation, um, by his every action and, and so forth. But he also got a lot of help along the way. And, and, and um, he, he deserves credit for that, right? Uh, for empowering others around him to hire good people, um, holding them accountable along the way. And that's how he built his legacy over a number of years. And, and so um, there, there are a lot of things that Dick Luger could have done with his life and been very successful. I can remember a conversation I had with his, his chief of staff, Marty Morris, once. And, and um, he said, look, Luger, he could be a successful CEO, which I believe yeah. could have been successful um, in, in, you know, head of a university. But he chose this. And um, we should all be grateful that he chose that. We want to be very respectful of the, of the senator's time. And we wanted to, I want to ask one quick question about your Senate run in 2016. It was going to be against Baron Hill again, uh, but Evan Bayh came in and you ended up winning in what was a good year for Republicans. When you, I remember that day uh, and there were a lot of Democrats walking downtown with a big smile on their face. And, and we hope to have Evan by on the podcast one day. So we don't want to be uh, disrespectful, but they were, they were for sure. They were going to win that race. How did you win it? How did you and your team win that race? I still feel like we had the advantage day one. Evan by entered with $10 million um, in, in the race. And incidentally, I, I, I've got a very positive relationship with Evan. I've never That's had good. a race against anybody who uh, I haven't made great efforts to um, develop a friendship on the back end. I've de developed a genuine friendship uh, with, with Evan Bayh. And, and so uh, I also want to say that. Um, but um, I had a, a deep conviction and normally my convictions are informed by facts, right? I'm a very, <laughs> I try to be a very objective person and not subject to overconfidence biases and, and so forth. But um, this one was deeper than that. This one was, um, we've got this. We've got this. We've worked too hard. Um, I see no other path than victory on this. And, um, and, and, and I think that that enthusiasm made a difference, not only in my own personal efforts. I, I, I think that the, the team understood that it was going to be all right, that we were going to win. It was just going to take nonstop concerted effort and concentration. Um, it was going to take no mistakes between Evan Bayh's entry and election day. It was going to take um, 
the the tightest sort of of teamwork any of us had 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 ever enjoyed. Uh, maybe extending back to sort of a, a kind of a military commitment. Sure. And um, uh, it, it was it was it was just going to be all in for everyone, and we were going to win. And um, I've I've never felt such certitude in um, such otherwise adverse circumstances than I felt <laughs> the moment after going through a drive-through, picking up a cup of coffee, and getting the phone call from uh, the the gent who effectively managed my campaign, Cam Savage, saying, "Todd, uh, very calmly." Um, just want to let you know, he gave me some throwaway information. He said, I also want to let you know, we got another, uh, another opponent. <laughs> what do you mean another opponent? He said, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Baron Hill's out of the race and, and Evan buys enter. And I said, how did, how did that happen? And he said, well, it's just, you know, it just did. And, and he's got 10 million bucks and, and, um, and he was calm and I was calm and I said, okay, we're going to win. I went right back to, making fundraising calls and we all sat on a course of, of getting it done. So there's a certain, there's also a certain piece I have to say during times of uh, sort of adversity like that, there was an expectation I was going to beat Baron Hill. I also have a positive relationship with Baron Hill, but. That's, and I think that's, that you're exactly right. Yeah. There was an expectation. So there it was therefore a pressure on me that I was going to blow it. Right. I knew no one thought I was going to beat Evan Fox. But I felt like I was going to beat Evan Pye. So suddenly, it's like playing sports when you're loose, right? The ball starts going in a lot more, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was loose. I'm like, hey, I got this thing. No one thinks I've got it. Um, And this is an opportunity to do something um, that um, is incredibly impactful. The control of the United States Senate, we have to assume, is going to come down to this race. And we operated under that assumption. Well, with Jay Kenworthy and Trevor Foudy and Cam Savage and my former boss, Kevin Ober, and all the people who helped you, you were in very, very good hands. And no one can say that that Todd Young took on the Washington generals to get where he was or to win office, to, to beat Baron Hill in the Congress in the ninth when he did, and then to beat uh, Evan Bayh, who is one of the very few people to win statewide in Indiana four times. Is, is a murderer's row with all due respect of opponents. Uh, let, let's get pl- quickly to the five questions when we let you go, because I know you have other things going on. Uh, I will quickly say you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. That's our friends, Danielle Shockey and Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We asked the same five questions of every guest. So, Todd, number one, what was your first job? Well, you've probably heard this in promotional videos and so forth, but it, it is indeed the case. Um, you know, like a, a, a lot of kiddos, I, I, I mowed lawns, I took care of dogs, I, I, um, um, I, I did all kinds of things like that. But probably the first, you know, the biggest job I had was my dad had, had an office building. And um, he only operated in a small part of it. He'd rent the rest of it out to others. This was back in the day uh, I was in 
early days of junior high school, sixth grade, seventh grade or something. And it was a lot cheaper to pay your son to be janitor <laughs> of this big old office building. It's actually in the Broderpool area now. It's right across from the old Burger Chef. So uh, John Mutz, remember the very location, being the owner of that Burger Chef. But um, it would take me hours and hours to clean those ashtrays and, 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 and toilets and, and that kind of stuff. And it gave me a great respect for what people who work with their hands do, right? Um, it, was, it was hard work. It wasn't fun work. I wasn't paid much money. Um, I took a little bit of satisfaction on the back end. As I got older, though, I really appreciated what um, people who, who did that sort of work and who do that sort of work um, um, just just so, uh, you know, how hard it is. And, and um, for people who do that work well, it just gives me an incredible appreciation for them and their character. So that was my first job. And, and you might say being a janitor and cleaning toilets is pretty good training to be a U.S. senator. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of messes in yeah, both places. Exactly. Yeah. Second question, what was your first concert? It was at Deer Creek. Remember that? It's gone through many iterations since. <laughs> it's been Klipsch and all the other stuff. But um, Deer Creek Music Center in Noblesville when nothing else was around there. It was a Steve Miller band. Hey, that's not bad. No, it's not bad. I invited a young lady. I still remember this invited a young lady to go out with me, uh, to the, to the concert. She had some other commitment. And so I invited my best friend to come along and, and, uh, he and I had a great time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your, your, uh, fellow Marine, Greg Ballard's first concert when he was at IU was Sly and the family stone. Oh, wow. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? You know, I, I, this one will might for some people be a a little boring, but um, it's short and uh, it's really accessible. It's called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. I mean, it, it takes very, very little time to read and, um, you go through it and you have a much better appreciation for the world of economics than a lot of people who get master's degree in the subject. Yeah. Number four, I'll, I'll leave aside the fact that the Marine is recommending a short book. That's easy to read. <laughs> it's Number- written grand too. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Robert E. Lee um, surrendering to Ulysses S. Grant, not out of um, animus towards Robert E. Lee, but because of the importance of how the occasion came together and the dignity by which it was carried out. Robert E. Lee went into that looking at, at, at all of the other sort of rebel leaders Um, throughout history. And typically they had lost their heads. And we're talking about unconditional surrender grant being on the other side of this, right? Uh, But Robert E. Lee decided that the nation had had enough. And um, I think that for all of his other flaws and for the flaw of his cause more broadly, retrospectively, um, he does deserve credit for that. 
And U.S. Grant uh, deserves credit for um, for allowing a a measure of face to be saved by the South. You know, it's 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 quite plausible. And there's a book out there by Jay Winnick. Uh, called oh, it's terrific. April 1865, the walk through all of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that war could have very easily turned into, you know, what we now call terrorist warfare or unconditional warfare. It could have gone on for really generations of, of unconventional warfare. Instead, it came to an end because of the ritual and because of leadership and the, and, and the mutual respect that those military leaders showed one another. So um, to be there in that room, in that living room, uh, where, where the war ended, uh, would have been absolutely fascinating in, in Appomattox Courthouse. When Mr. Chris Spangle interviewed me for this podcast and he asked me this question, that was the event I chose for every single one of the reasons that you just described, because Lee's, some of Lee's officers wanted them to hide in the hills and carry on the war. And Lee said no. And Grant showed such, such magnanimity when it came to uh, what was the bloodiest war in our history. But he said after, after people started cheering when Grant left, excuse me, when Lee left, Grant told his officers to stop the cheering because the rebels are our countrymen again. And that's the exact right sentiment that needed to be expressed. Perfect answer. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? I get to have dinner in my job with some remarkable people. The CEOs of multinational companies. I had lunch not too long ago with, with Bill Gates. It was unguarded. Um, uh, he stopped by a, a Senate lunch. So, um, the people I don't get to spend uh, as much time with as, as uh, I would like to are my children. So um, the least amount of time I have left are my two oldest children. So it would be my daughter, Abigail, who's almost 14, and my other daughter, Ava, who is 12. We talked earlier in the podcast as we wrap it up about uh, Todd Young and, and his approach to things and his persona and in his personality. And I'll say this very quick story. I saw the Senator about a year ago at a gym and we talked very briefly. I was about to play racquetball. It was a gym on the South side of Indianapolis. And we had a quick two minute conversation. And afterward, as I sat down to prepare to play racquetball, a friend of mine goes, Hey, who's your friend? I saw you guys talking. He looks really familiar. I go, yeah. I said, I've known him for about 10 or 12 years. Great guy. I go, but he's got kind of an important job. I didn't want to keep him. He goes, well, he seemed like he was just kind of hanging out. What's his job? And I laughed and go, he's the senior senator from the state of Indiana. And this guy simply couldn't believe it. Not because we were at a gym, not because he didn't know who he was per se, but because of Senator Young's easygoing nature, the genuineness of his personality, and the fact that he could be talking to anyone in the world, but he took just a couple minutes to talk to an old friend. I very much appreciated that conversation as I did the conversations we've had about my son's service in Afghanistan and being in the military and the fact that you took some time to be with us today. Thank you very much. And I hope we can come back another time. We'd love to talk to you about more things when the time is right. That'd be great, Robert. It's been a lot of fun. And and, um, thank you for your service. Thank you for this opportunity. And um, for those who are watching and or listening, um, God bless you. Stay safe during this 
uh, pandemic and um, know that it really is a privilege to serve this great state of Indiana, serve this country. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.